Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike. My name is Kason. Today, we're going to be talking a little Kingdom Hearts. We're going to be talking Nintendo updating their guidelines for YouTube, which is freaking crazy. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. That's our main topic today. I have a yep. lot of thoughts on that. But how to keep the spirit of a work and continue that through an entire film trilogy. Um... And then, of course, we'll have our community stories. Lots of cool stuff from the community to share with you guys today. So, let's talk, first of all, about the fact that Kingdom Hearts 3 is gold. After five years of development, that game is done. They finished that game. Wow. It is completely done. They are ready to ship it out. No more delays. Well, they're ready to start printing it out, right? Yeah. (coughs) They're ready to start, uh, because it's end of July, uh, July, (laughs) end of January, that, uh, the game is releasing. Yeah, so they got like six January. weeks. So get stoked. <sighs> That's crazy. Um, but here, here's the thing. This prompted me to go back and look at the announcement trailer because I was, I was like, "Has it really been five years since that game was announced?" I couldn't believe that because I read that and I was like, "No, it's been it's been five it's years. It's been right? more than five years." So, th- whoever uh, Disney Games is the YouTube channel where I'm watching this trailer at i don't i don't think that's where it was originally posted you could probably find one on square enix's own like japanese youtube page or whatever yeah but this says june 11th 2013 which lines up with e3 yeah so i'm pretty sure that's that was the year it was announced 2013 dude like what the frick anyways so i was watching this right and i was like man like i can't believe the passage of time and how fast it has become. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, so, you know, a five-year development cycle used to be, well, used to be that games, they could just bust them out like year after year. But like right. somewhere around, I guess, like late N64, GameCube and beyond, five years became, at least for like the Zelda series, like kind of a normal like development cycle. Um, it seemed to be about every five years a new Zelda game was coming out. That's kind of what I assumed. Yeah, sounds about right. That's how long it takes to make a AAA game is about five yeah. years, right? Um, that's become more and more true, <laughs> uh, if not even a little longer than that for certain yeah. Square Enix projects. But I remember watching this and being like, holy crap. And then here's the part, here's the part that freaking slew me as I was revisiting this, right? At the end of it, okay, hold on. They're going to show more stuff. Okay, so he's running around. Bunch of heartless are coming after him. And he's and I was like, oh man, this is gonna be crazy. It looks so good. It's you know, Unreal Engine 4 rendered thing. They've actually stayed pretty faithful to it. The the original look they had here. To but, the way it looks no, this way. part. So they have Relive the Origins in Kingdom Hearts 1.5 remix. Oh, okay, never mind, never mind, never mind. Okay. Okay, I changed my mind. I, I read this wrong the first time I was watching this. I thought that they had Kingdom Hearts 3 available for pre-order at the launch of this trailer. And I was like, what? Oh, that's funny. <laughs> but no, this is Kingdom Hearts 1.5. So never mind. Yeah. My entire point has been... <laughs> I was about to... I, I, was like, I was like, that's crazy. Who in their right mind freaking pre-ordered Kingdom Hearts 3 when this was released and waited five years for their pre-order? Yeah. But that's not what this is. This is Kingdom Hearts Remix 1.5. That makes way more sense. Anyways, 
Uh, I'm excited. Where excited where were where were you guys? Game. Where were you guys when this was announced? I remember where I was. <laughs> freaking Bountiful Court. I think we were in Bountiful Court. <laughs> yeah. That's how freaking long ago this was. We this was we were living Okay, there were six people in this apartment. It was a student apartment. Yeah. Six people in it. There's two bedrooms, so three dudes. Yeah, per bedroom. Per room. <laughs> This place was like $115 a month in the summer. Yeah, it was cheap. <laughs> it was cheap. And like 220 in the in the spring and fall, yeah. right? Like this place was anyways, you can imagine. Um but no, that's when we first started doing YouTube. And we were we were like all on the at the time Mori Alaski YouTube channel. Mhm. Just that feels like a freaking eternity ago, dude. Like, ugh. I can't believe it, but you know what's anyways, wild? Mario Parkour came out like two months after this. What the fetch? Yeah. No way! Yeah, dude, that's how long it's been. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's crazy! It has been that long. That's crazy. Okay, anyways, yeah, it's been a minute <laughs> since they announced this game, but it is done. It's coming out. You will have your hands on it. Yep. End of January. Now. Uh, I've been thinking about this a little bit. Um, I don't know if this is going to happen. I don't want to make any promises and get anybody like freaking excited or whatever. <clears throat> but I'm thinking about trying to run through the series on Twitch. Oh, yeah. Before Kingdom Hearts 3 comes out. To gauge whether or not I will buy Kingdom Hearts 3. <laughs> like if I can like get into it and I can play it. Like it's probably not... You know, we are already like freaking like pushing it with the current schedule that we try to run with content. But right. if there was a way to have you or somebody from the community like there explaining this crap to me while I'm trying to play it <laughs> to see like if I can like make any sort uh, of sense of this and then like, go, OK, is is this something that interests me enough to buy Kingdom Hearts 3 and play this. Otherwise, I'll just leave that to you to do on this channel. Sure, sure. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if I'm going to be able to do that or not. Yeah. Uh, they have they have the, the remixes on the PlayStation 4, right? Yeah, they're on the PS4 now. And I believe it's just one game. It's 1.5 and 2.5. All in but one But then 2.8 is a separate... That has Dream Drop Distance and stuff. Yeah, but we have a copy, a physical copy of that, right? Yeah, yeah, I have that one. Yeah. Okay. So we would have essentially all of it available within like two essentially games if I were to get the 1.5, remix yeah, thing. I basically. Yeah. Now here's my question. Is that a better version, the PS4 version, better than the PS3 remasters? Wait, now, which one of those are the better? It's basically the same, but because it's the remix version, which was not the original version. It's like what the Japanese got back in whenever long time ago um but it does not have a playable 358 over two days it is a movie you just watch it and they kind of skip some things so because they i don't think they could figure out how to get the ds yeah to work so that game isn't actually playable in 1.5 and 2.5 unfortunately that's like the best one how comprehensive is the coverage of its cutscenes? um it's it you you're missing a lot there's a mm. ton of gaps that need to be filled out mm. i've watched the movie it's um it's 
you miss a lot. You miss a lot, but it is it's comprehensible as long as you know what's happening. Because one cutscene plays after the other, and it's just like what what the heck. But you get used to it, and you're like, okay, just assume nothing important happened between this and that, <laughs> and you can watch it linearly. It's about five hours, maybe. Is that right? Um, uh, I I have that game still. Uh, the DS. Oh, good. So then, I then could, you should play that on the DS. I could stream that. Because yeah. we have the the 3ds with the that's capability right. for streaming and stuff. Good, good. So I could do that, and somebody, I do remember that's my favorite one. So somebody's saying if I should I should list the most important Kingdom Hearts games to play. Uh, <laughs> I'm not I'm not playing that freaking mobile key thing. I'm not doing that. No, don't do that. Even though that's okay. in, in unbelievably important to the scheme of things. Is that so, in it movie just takes form? So long to play. On... There's a movie of that, yeah. People have okay. compiled it themselves. So the movie is on 2.8, but don't watch that. Um, I would watch a compilation movie from the game that that um, just YouTube people have made based on the okay. cutscenes of the game. Uh, the 2.8 movie, um, watch that afterwards, I guess. But it's it's you won't understand much there unless you watch the linear stuff on YouTube first from what other people have made. Okay, and and what else should I start? Um, with the chronological release? No, no. Or should I start at the chronological time? Or no, chronological release. Don't start chronological time. So don't start start Birth by Sleep. Don't start with Birth by Sleep. Um, Start because, like, some people want to play at Birth by Sleep first, but there's information in the first few games that they're relying on you to have when you play Birth by Sleep. Even that it's a prequel. It's not... It's not, um, it didn't actually come first. You're supposed to, kind of like watching Star Wars, you watch four, five, and six first. You don't, you can watch one, two, three first like, if you want to, but one, two, and three relies on you having an al- already existent knowledge of four, five, and six, right? Okay. And so I would play it in release order because that's the way the information was released by the director. Okay. And right. yeah, that's what I, I do. Will, but somebody in the comments into- was saying to list only the important ones and. I don't know if I can actually do that without <laughs> people all hating me, right? Because you everyone will to... tell me that they're all important. That's what. That's what. Um, oh. And there is important stuff in each one. But well, I would say games if like you're recoded just Parts Three, then play Kingdom Hearts One, Two, and Birth by Sleep. And people might not like that I didn't say Dream Drop Distance, but honestly, that just is weird. And so, just don't well, worry about it. Games like Recoded, for instance, more or less just cover the same yeah. information of one. Recoded right? offers almost nothing new. Okay, so you can just skip that. You can skip Recoded completely. Um, it does have a little connection to Unchained, to un- Unchained Key, the phone game, Yeah, uh, in the 1.5 remix, I think. But I, I you, you can skip it. Uh, okay. Or just watch the movie, I guess. Saint, <laughs> movie Saint, Bo- Saint Boots also confirming to play release order. So. Yes, play release order. Good. Okay. Thank you, Saint that, Boots. That will help me, I think, because I actually really, I like legit really like Kingdom Hearts 1. Um, yeah, 1 is so good. That game to me is like an all-time classic. I freaking like that game a lot. Yeah. Where where it gets dicey for me is it starts in Kingdom Hearts Two, well, I guess the one in between that, the Chain of Memories, but um, I didn't really play that very much. But Kingdom Hearts 2, I was just like, dude, this is just getting insane. And then then I played uh, 
358 over 2 or whatever the freak that game's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And loved that. And I was like, okay, I'm into this again. And yeah. then and then I played Birth by Sleep. I was like, what the uh-huh. fetch? What the <laughs> fetch? Is go-? And then I played, like, I think that it was in Battleful Court, probably around the time that this game was announced, <laughs> that I borrowed Dream Drop Distance Dream from, Drop. yeah, from our roommate. From Trent, and, yeah. Yeah. And I played it. Literally for like two hours in bed that one time, and I was like, "F this game, dude! Like this tutorial just goes on forever. Like, just yeah. let me play the game." And it just kept going on and on. I was, I was like, "I can't handle this. I'm done." I and then they introduced a new. Again. You've played The World Ends with You, right? Yes. Okay, and that that's where they they kind of merge instead of um like Disney stuff. They're merging that, or instead of Final Fantasy stuff, they merge World Ends with You into Kingdom Hearts. Mm. And um, I hadn't played World Ends with you, so I was like, I had that no just, connection to those characters. That just reminded me that the, the remaster, re-release of uh, that game is out. Yeah, on the that's coming out too. Yeah, it's already out. I think on the Switch the HD so, remix. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Yeah, I should uh, maybe look into that too, dude. Don't um, don't push yourself too much. I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know, man. Now, I would not go so far as to say Dream Drop Distance sucks. I would not say that. But it is, of all the <laughs> games, it was likely my least favorite. So, well, recoded. Combat wise, that one was supposed to introduce like this, like this, like cool flow to combat where you're like, like yeah. skating on things and, you can and zip jumping and, yeah, around it, and zipping fast. Yeah. That that looked cool, but like I just couldn't get into it enough to like really feel the flow of it because. It was stopping me constantly, right? Like, the whole concept of the (laughs) gameplay was, like, this fast-flowing, like, don't ever stop, but they were constantly just stopping you. Tutorial, 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 tutorial. I guess once you get past Stop! Stop it! (laughs) I can't take this, man! For, like, three hours! Um, anyways. Good luck, man. I I will let you guys know what I plan to do, or if I will do this at all, depending on how things go. In the coming weeks, because, I mean, it's only like a month away. There's a lot of games to get through in like a month, right? But yeah, it's seven, seven they're, games. They're not, they're not short games, necessarily. No. So Some of them are shorter than others, but they're not short games. I'll tell you how, exactly how much time I spent playing video games probably the last month. It was, I want to say, less than uh, two hours per week. Oof. It was a very small amount of time. But I finally... Thanksgiving? Beat, well, there was that. <laughs> There was the big event at the beginning of the month. Yeah. Um, there was uh, a bunch of other stuff I'm trying to get caught up on. Um, and so anyways, it was just uh, no time for it. But, um, oh, yeah, we were starting like the book club. Yeah, yeah, you know, we're we, reading. We, we did our rebrand of uh, Resident Arc. Yeah. <laughs> like a ton of stuff sort of like happened. And it was just like I had no time for playing games. But I did finally finish God of War after seven Oh, months. nice. That game is freaking amazing. Nice. And I cannot wait for what they do next with that game. Like, the game's freaking awesome. So, anyone who's not played that, I suggest it. It's great. I've heard um, good things. All right. Let's, uh, let's move off of Kingdom Hearts here. Um, so, we'll, we'll try to get through this one a little quicker because we have some stuff to get through. Um, yeah. So, Nintendo just announced that they're updating their content usage guidelines for YouTube. 
Um, this is crazy, right? I think that we probably covered this on the Dark Pixel podcast, like as an early episode, most likely, when they announced that, like, they had, like, a partnership, more or less, with channels on YouTube, right? If you wanted to (coughs) cover Nintendo games, you could, like, partner with them and they would do a revenue share. Yeah. But it was the most bogus, terrible deal, like, all time, right? There was, like, two different ways you could do it. One is you could only cover Nintendo content, like exclusively Nintendo content on your YouTube channel. And you would get a whopping 30% of the revenue share and Nintendo would get 70. Now, this is after YouTube has taken their like 55% share of the original ad revenue. Then the 45% that's left, Nintendo's going to take 70%. You're going to take 30 and then you're going to split that with your freaking like... Network MCN. that you're that you're partnered yeah. with, they're gonna take their twenty or ten percent or whatever, and you're gonna be left with like twenty percent of the freaking like money ad revenue. No, not it's even not that. It's it. less Who, than that. It's way possibly do that. Anyways, and that's only that. That's if your channel exclusively covered Nintendo, yeah. right? If you weren't exclusively covering Nintendo, they only offered a twenty percent share. And it was just like, dude, no one's going to go for this. This is such a stupid idea. And anyways, after I don't know how long, they finally backtracked on this. And uh, essentially, they'll let you do whatever. Aside from, I think the only the only really guidelines to this. Uh, let's see. Well, let's, let's just read it. Hmm. Um, as long as uh, you follow some basic rules, we will not object to your use of gameplay footage and screenshots captured from games for which Nintendo owns the copyright in the content you create for appropriate video and image sharing sites. To help guide you, we prepared following guidelines. You may monetize your videos and channel using the monetization methods separately specified by Nintendo. Other forms of monetization of our intellectual property for commercial purposes are not permitted. So basically... YouTube videos are fine, but you can't, you know, in other ways. Uh, We encourage you to create videos that include your creative (laughs) input and commentary. Videos and images that contain mere copies of Nintendo game content without creative input or commentary not permitted. So you can't just, like, upload a Let's Play of an entire game, no commentary, right? That's not what they're talking about. Um, You may, however, post gameplay videos and screenshots using Nintendo system features such as the capture button or Nintendo Switch without additional input or commentary. So you can use their own capture, uh, you know, feature on the Switch to share stuff without input. Because do do they have a watermark on that? I've never actually tried that before. Oh, we lost Casey. Um, He'll be back hopefully in a minute. There he is. He's back. Do they have you tried doing the record or like share feature on the Nintendo switch. I have, I've recorded things, but I haven't, I haven't gone back and watched them yet, but I've pushed and held the button and it says recording video, but I haven't, I haven't come back and watched them. It doesn't have a watermark on it. Does it? I don't know. Cause I would wonder why. I, I know it's 30 seconds. So, something happens and you think, Oh, that was freaking funny. And you hold the button and it records the last 30 seconds. I think. Yeah. But and what I'm curious about is that they're cool with you sharing stuff with their own capture, right? You don't have to put your input or commentary on that. Um, but it, it must be because it is know. short, right? Like, 
you, you can't show more than 30 seconds of something that way. So it's like, if you don't put commentary on it and you share 30 seconds of gameplay footage, like, whatever, we're not going to come after you. Um, you okay. know what? Are they going to have... Um, I wonder if in this new Smash Brothers, they're going to have a mode where you can, re, you can watch the replay of a battle mm, after the cool. battle's over. That would be cool if they did. Because yeah. I'm trying to think of how that whole capture... Because when something happens, you have... You have to push the button and it records the last thirty seconds. If you're in the middle of a smash game, that that um me- that ruins the flow. You can't do that in the middle of smash. You would yeah. have to record the battle. You would have to go into a replay or something and record it there. Yeah, because but if it's, only, if it's moment, only thirty, you're not if it's only to do that, right? It's only thirty seconds. You wouldn't be able to record a full battle like at all. Anyways. No, but you you could record something. You could crazy go back to a certain part. Or maybe you could just save the whole recording of the battle. I don't know. That would be I a really smart idea if they did that. that. It'd be smart if they did that. I don't know. Yeah. Because you could do that in um, Dissidia. Uh, Dissidia oh, Final really? Fantasy. You could oh, go nice. back and replay a battle, and you could actually move a camera around. and See, like, that's freaking, cool. Like, if Smash Brothers lets you do that, yeah. position a camera and, and watch a battle, and then put that up online, that'd be uh, that would be sweet. I'd be way into that. I don't think they will, but that'd be sweet. Yeah. Um, they got to do something, though, if they want people to share that footage. And then they also say here, if you want to use... Wait, you are only permitted to use Nintendo game content that has been officially released or from promotional materials officially released by Nintendo, hmm. such as product trailers or Nintendo Directs. That's cool, though. That uh, Allowing people to share their trailers and their Nintendo trailers Directs too. without you know copyright claiming, that that's kind of actually really cool. Um if you want to use the intellectual property of a third party, I mean, you know, it's obvious. We can't give you permission to use some other game that's not a Nintendo game. Uh, right. You're not permitted to imply or state that your videos are officially affiliated with or sponsored by Nintendo. So you have to distance yourself from being official. And we reserve the right to remove any content that we believe is unlawful, infringing, inappropriate, or not in line with these guidelines. So, I mean, that's a pretty short list. Sure. And it, it leaves a lot of things open. Yeah. Basically, I would I would interpret this to mean that you can do Let's Plays of Nintendo games since you're adding your commentary to it. And that's big. That's huge. I mean, and I think, I, I honestly believe the reason that they're really doing this is because they want Smash Brothers all over the freaking internet. All over. <laughs> they want Smash footage everywhere. They want people sharing that like crazy. I wonder if... if- if because I know they keep metrics on this stuff, but I wonder if they have if they have watched like the number or the views for content for Nintendo related content since this policy started, and I wonder if it's just been on a downward I know trend until no one's gonna freaking like, share. No one's gonna not, share your content. This isn't helping exactly. No one's gonna share it if that's how you're gonna do. I don't know that, but I'm guessing that that may be the case, given that they're reversing their stance now. Yeah, but at least they're finally on board with this. Yeah. I know that we've had a number of our videos demonetized because we yes. were talking about freaking like Breath of the Wild or something, you know? Yeah, Breath of the Wild, Nintendo Directs, or yeah, things like that that we show it and it's like demonetized. Like it's just like, dude, so dumb. It was like any <laughs> cutscene. Like we could get away with showing um, our personal gameplay footage from Zelda. Yeah. But any time there was a cutscene, it was like immediately freaking demonetized. <laughs> so stupid. Yep. 
but that shouldn't happen anymore. So good on them. It's way late, but thank you for finally getting with the program and realizing that this helps you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> to let people talk about your freaking stuff and show it off, right? It's just, oh, man, it's so easy. I, yeah. Anyways, Nintendo is crazy sometimes. But. Well, another thing, they have a new president now. It was around the time that this their last president stepped up that this policy mm. started. Mm. And then now... Oh, they, have a new, they have a new president? They have a new president. Yeah, Kimishima has oh, stepped down. I didn't know that. Yeah, so, and now their new president, he's a younger guy. He's like, hold on, let me... No way. Um, yeah, this happened really suddenly, really quietly. Yeah, the new president is Shintaro Furukawa. Um, no way. Yeah, and it, it, so that's happened as of, I think, June. So for the two years that Kimishima was in, three years, I guess, this policy was in place. And then now this new president's in and the policy magically disappears. So um, I think it has something to do. And this new president, you should look at him. He's younger. He's, I don't know. He's younger. <laughs> I don't know anything <laughs> about him. <laughs> but he's younger. And uh, hopefully <clears throat> he'll be more like, uh, you know, Satoru Iwata. But we'll see. We'll see what I happens. I hope so. I guy. hope so. Anyways, yeah. stuff. Um, a couple things from the comments here before we move on. Uh, Earth to Patrick says, uh, your How to Learn Japanese video is an inspiration for learning languages. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I uh, Learn Japanese, man. Do it. You can do it. <laughs> um, uh, so he's only 46 is what Rainmaker's saying. Mm. He's, Colonius, uh, yeah. Uh, he's Colonius is telling me to finish CrossCode before I jump into Kingdom Hearts. Not a bad idea because I really like CrossCode. <laughs> that's my <laughs> that's my kind of game right there. That's that's what I'm yeah. all about. Uh, I did a stream for that the other day. It's oh, a great cool. game. Um, okay, uh, people talking about classic game room leaving YouTube. I've seen a lot of channels leaving leaving YouTube altogether. Um, yeah, Epic Name Bro. I don't know if you've heard of him. He does like he did like Dark Souls mm -hmm. content basically, like Dark Souls oh. um, lore and explanations and analysis of Dark Souls and Demon Souls. And, Souls games. Dude just has like half a million subscribers just fetching peace out of YouTube. Just like, bye. I'm going to Twitch now. Uh, so, yeah, it's been kind of crazy to see how people are just ditching it lately. YouTube is difficult to be partnered with sometimes. It is what it is. Yep. Make it a hobby. You'll be okay. Try to make it a business. You're going to have a hard time unless you diversify. You got to be on Diversifying. all the different social media and you got to be creating unique content on each one of those things for it. Right. And not yeah. trying to like use them to promote your YouTube. Right. Like that's not, shouldn't do it that way. <laughs> it's not going to work out for you. It takes a lot of time. Okay. Um, let's, let's jump into this because this is a question that um, we were asked by one of our patrons many weeks ago. And I just hadn't been able to work it into one of our podcasts yet. Um, I can't pronounce his last name, so I apologize for that. But this comes from I believe Alexander. it's uh, DeBavaleri. DeBavaleri. Alexander DeBavaleri from Patreon. Um, kind of a, a, a lot of context to this. And it was based on something we had said in a podcast a couple months ago. Um, so he says, I watched the podcast because I was curious to know about what Uematsu said during the Edamame interview. So this was the interview where... Kitase, uh, um, uh, 
creator of Final Fantasy. What's his fetching name? Hironobu Sakaguchi. Oh, Sakaguchi, yeah. <laughs> and Nobuo and Ematsu sat down and they did that interview, right? We covered that on a podcast. Right. He says, I was interested when Uematsu said he believed art should inspire the artist and the audience to reflect on what life means. And was surprised and delighted to then hear you guys mention Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung. I was thinking about why Final Fantasy VII had such an impact on so many people to the extent that some people actually cried when they announced the remake. And the parallels with that and stories like The Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. I think if you know Campbell and Jung's work... You would understand me when I say I believe that these kinds of stories are as are, are an intrinsic part of being human and are necessary to be healthy. I don't mm -hmm. know if either of you have been to Paris, but I feel Midgar has definitely taken a lot of design cues from Paris, and that got me thinking about the stories we tell ourselves versus the stories we live out. In ancient times, myths were really believed and formed the realities that people lived in, and today we sort of regulate anything that falls outside of the dogmatic material materialistic worldview to belonging to the world of fiction, fictional narratives. Okay, I'm, we're good. We're about halfway there. Halfway there. <laughs> the Japanese, with their Shinto tradition, believe kami inhabit everything, um, from a mountain, a forest, Totoro in my neighbor Totoro, to ev everyday objects. This belief helps them relate to these things on a personal level, like how Mike talks about the planet being presented as a character in Final Fantasy VII. However, contrary to their traditions, Japan has been modernized to resemble the West and its materialistic view. I'm really curious to know what you guys think about the tendency for young Japanese men to shut themselves away from the real world and binge on video games and anime, and if you have any insight on what you think the role of narrative should be in a society. I think we need narratives as a tool to understand our society, satire like South Park, but why is it that we are so desperately drawn to powerful narratives that follow the hero's journey archetype? And can you please contrast that kind of storytelling with, say, mystery narratives, as you touched upon in the last podcast? When does the narrative become necessary for health, and when does it become just entertainment or escapism? Thanks. So, for the most part, I'm going to let Kaysen take this because I think Kaysen's a lot more familiar with mm -hmm. Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung than I am. So to take it from that angle, he probably has uh, a clearer idea of where Alexander's coming from on this. I'll chirp in if I have something to say. I do. I just got to say, for the most part, I agree with what Alexander is saying. Um, gosh, it's just it. a lot of the stuff, especially when it comes to Carl Jung, is stuff that I understand because it makes sense. It's... it's um. It it's uh it speaks to me. It speaks to who who I am and how I think and how most people think. Um, but the the trouble and why Carl Jung was so um, I guess famous for what he the work he did is that it's incredibly hard to verbalize it to to put it into words. Um, and Jung was of course a genius at that, and he he was able to kind of do stuff that a lot of people understood to be true, but that no one's really been able to to verbalize and part of that is because humans are really good at uh, generating abstractions we're really good at approximating things but humans are actually really bad at perceiving reality at perceiving actual mm -hmm. objective reality without any taint due to certain colored lens we're wearing due to our past experiences due to oh, other yes, similar yeah. things we've seen humans have a hard time with objective reality 
but we are really good at generating abstractions from objective reality. And the abstractions that we, <laughs> this is so hard to explain, but the abstractions that we perceive from reality, that the way our brain interprets them, which is why they're abstractions, they're, it's not the real thing. It's the abstraction. It's the idea of the thing that your brain is presenting to yourself. It's, it's the utility of the object that you see. Uh, like if you, um, if you see a big boulder on the ground that's about two feet tall, right? And it seems to be um, similar in your brain to a chair or a beanbag or... Oh, crap. Or we're, losing, we're losing you. I don't know. I think you're about to go. There, there is... And okay. Wrap. My thing. Okay, I think you're coming back. Did you lose me? There you are. Did you, you lose saying, me? You were saying a chair and a beanbag. That's where, that's where okay. we lost you. Anyways, the, the way the brain sees it, it was, oh, that's a thing to sit on, right? And so you can look at it and you can kind of within your whatever your human uh, needs are and whatever your temporal wants are, you can see things based on what your, uh, what state of mind you're in at the time. If you're tired, that rock becomes a chair. Uh, the abstraction of a chair is, is imprinted onto the rock. <laughs> and so your brain is looking for approximations of things that could potentially be used to sit on if you're tired. So anyways, the way Carl Jung talks is he, he goes into a lot about dreams. And one of the ways that humans abstract reality is while we are asleep in our dreams. Uh, because our dreams, we try to figure out what, what things mean, right? And our dreams are basically, <laughs> it's basically us trying to make sense of the world using no filter of, oh, what do you call it? Um, oh, I can't remember the word right now. Shoot. Without, um, anyways, you, you just believe what you see. You believe that it's real because it's your dream and you see it and it's there and you're not thinking how you got there. Mm -hmm. The, the rationality parts of your brain are just kind of not present when you dream and you just accept things as how they are because irrational things happen to you all the time. And the way that you respond to them is kind of what makes up like you in this, the idea of you, I guess, in um, this abstract dream form. <clears throat> so when it comes to stories, <laughs> as we talk about Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Final Fantasy seven, they tend to focus on the types of tropes and archetypes that our brains tend to, um, have already abstracted from the world that we see at large, from other people. You have the, mm -hmm. the idea of the evil person. Based on all the people that you've seen throughout your entire life, you lift out of all of them an approximation of one single villain. So all the people that you've known, all the bad things they've done, they hit you, they lie to you, they cheat, they steal, they smile at you while behind their backs they're holding... A knife. I don't know. It depends on what's happened to you in your life. But most humans actually have a similar idea of what approximates an evil villain, right? Mm. And the stories that are able to kind of encapsulate that because we have a hard time verbalizing it. We have a hard time saying, oh, this is what a, a bad guy is because not all the bad guys are the same. But when you, 
when you lift from all of the approximations, you know, one single unit of a bad guy, all of a sudden you get something akin to Lord Voldemort or Sauron or Saruman or even um, Sephiroth in, you know, in the way that <coughs> like destructive, <coughs> sorry, I'm still kind of sick. And like destructive behavior and in the way that they are kind of treating you and forcing you to do things you don't want to do and all that kind of stuff, which happens in all of those, by the way. Uh, Saruman, with his persuasive voice, he's able to get you to do stuff that you don't want to do. Same thing with Sauron and the ring. The ring hooks you and you can't look away. Voldemort has this connection with Harry Potter where he can literally read his thoughts and he gets Harry to do things he wants Harry to do without Harry knowing. And then in Final Fantasy VII, Sephiroth, kind of um, manipulates Cloud, getting forcing Cloud to do things that Cloud doesn't want to do. So in all three of the examples that were given here, we have something that we can say, hey, this is what humans consider a general idea of an evil person, somebody who gets people to do things they don't want to do, right? And forces them to do it. They don't have a choice in the matter. And mm -hmm. that's a huge, that's one of the huge parts of the whole archetypal like idea. So that may be, and then of course, all the good people you've ever seen, you approximate the idea of a good person. And that's, you know, the exact same thing goes the opposite direction as well. So that is a large part of Carl Jung, Carl Jung's like philosophy and ideology. I don't know how much you guys got there, but it's deeper than it seems. And the stories that are able to resonate with, with most humans tend to be stories that encapsulate that the best that encapsulate humans' own experiences the best with all the thousands and, I don't know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, however many people you have ever seen and been around in your life and the people you've interacted with, hundreds of thousands might be a little high, but all the people you've ever interacted with, um, your, your brain, when you go to sleep, it generates approximations of those people. And that's what that's kind of what keeps you going. Like humans can't live without dreaming. It's the weirdest thing. Your, your ability to perceive reality completely breaks down when you can't, when you aren't dreaming or when, um, when you aren't able to go into like REM sleep or there are certain things that like, for some reason, it's really hard. Nobody really knows why, but dreams are such an important part of our construction of reality that we literally can't perceive it without them. And, and we have to, every animal kind of does this, but you're, you're, you know, the way your brain files memories and kind of puts things here and there and the way it does it, it while you're unconscious, while you're sleeping is crazy. And so we don't understand a ton about ourselves. And then all of a sudden here comes a movie or a video game or a book that encapsulates this thing about us that we know, but that we can't put into words. And that is what makes us so drawn to it. Mm. So that did is, you guys get that? That is a fantastic answer. I, I pretty much covered almost everything. There's, I tried to. There was about seven questions there. But. There's two things that I want to chime in on that are <coughs> not not necessarily going to retread anything that you just said. Sure. Because um, you said that really, really well. That was fantastic. Um, so one part of what he says here is the Japanese with their Shinto tradition believe in kami. And then he goes on to say, uh, you know, they've modernized with western sort of materialistic stuff um but then yeah. he says uh where is it i'm really curious to know what you guys think about the tendency for young japanese men to shut themselves away from the world and binge on video games and anime and if you have any huh. insight on what you think the role of narrative should be in a society so i don't pretend in any way shape or form to be an expert on japanese culture okay this is entirely my 
limited perspective based on what I know, which is almost nothing <laughs> about Japanese culture, okay? Aside from what I've talked about with Case and Landon, who have a lot more knowledge on this. But last night, while I was going to bed, I was browsing some videos. And, well, actually, this I guess my thought on this kind of started because of the video that I'm making for, well, it's done now, the video that will be released tomorrow on the YouTube channel. Um, it's about dialogue, and uh, I had, I, I make a mention in there. This is based on the conversation we had a couple weeks ago, so anyone who watched the podcast knows what kind of what we'll be covering. But... Mm-hmm. My aversion to a lot of the dialogue we see in modern Japanese RPGs. Oh yes, and, yeah, yeah, and um, and anime and stuff like that. Trying to find out like what it is about the way these are commonly constructed that seems to bother some people. Anyways, I ended up not putting a, a ton of focus on that in the actual end product of the video, but I did like replay the opening hours of Persona 4 again to try and see like what it was about that game's writing that bothered me, and I found mm. out what it was. Um <clears throat> on top, so anyways, I was kind of looking at a bunch of anime and just to collect footage for things while I was talking about them. And uh that was um just a, a sinkhole of degeneracy <laughs> while I was trying to find like embarrassing moments, you know, cause I was talking about if a character's oh. embarrassed, they, <laughs> they, um, you know, like they don't want to say what's on their mind. If, if you're feeling embarrassed or afraid, uh, you'll often, you'll have subtext in, in what you actually say. You don't actually mean what you're saying. So I was trying to find footage, a piece of footage that would just represent that idea. So I would do a search like embarrassing moments in anime or something. And it's just like, Oh my Freaking, ugh. It was not good. <laughs> right? But it got me thinking about why this kind of content is so prevalent, why it's so popular, especially with adolescent Japanese men, right? Like, why is this so popular? Then, this is unrelated, I was going to bed and... I watched an old video game donkey video about more or less just pointing out the differences between the marketing for certain games and consoles in Japan and then their American counterparts. Yeah. And he kind of starts out by saying, Hey, remember uh, those donkey Kong commercials where the guy acts like he doesn't give like a single crap about like what he's talking about. And it's like the voices donkey Kong country on the game boy or on the super Nintendo. And it's just like a really bland voice over. Right. <clears throat> It's very boring commercial. And then it's like, uh, let's pull up the Japanese version. It's like, ah, like freaking out, like Donkey Kong, blah, 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 blah. Dude's like literally screaming, dude. Yeah. Then he goes into like a Crash Bandicoot example. And you remember the Crash commercials where the guy was in the Crash suit? Yeah, yeah. He has like yeah, the, the big that. costume and he would be like, oh, Crash Bandicoot, like coming up, blah, 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 blah. And it's very yeah. like milk toast. <laughs> This bland commercial. And he's like, let's let's take a look at the Japanese commercial. Literal like metal. <laughs> and it's just like, oh crash bandicoot! <laughs> it's like yelling and freaking out. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then he goes into some different games that just like the total like out of this world, like whack ideas some of these games have. Like they're just freaking crazy. Like these 
this like horse racing game with like a freaking sumo like it's just like ideas that just so off the wall you can like not even imagine like how someone could come up with that crazy stuff right yeah and then on the end of the video i actually think this is a korean game it's not a japanese game but it was it was a baby fighting game essentially like babies were the characters you select and they like freaking fight each other and get electrocuted and there's like mini games where they're like sunk under the freaking ocean with like a freaking uh, i don't know what you call it like a, an anchor tied to their leg and you try to swim up there like drowning in the freaking ocean like these babies and stuff Wow. Anyway, it's a hilarious video. Uh, you guys yeah. should watch it if you haven't seen it. But I was, I was just like this, just explosion, outburst of energy, and why is that? And and you think about the 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 business culture of Japan. You think about the huge emphasis on politeness, on formality. I I think that what might be happening is that these people are so rigid. And, and place such an emphasis on respect for elders and on, yeah. um, you know, sort of like hiding these, these sorts of um, feelings and emotions yes. and, and everything Absolutely. else. That when you get into private life and you can finally just like let go of that energy that you've kept cooped up and you've hidden and, 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 um, and really like, I guess, just like bottled up that yeah indulging in those feelings makes perfect sense and i think that this would apply to all the sexual content that you see in anime and manga yeah it would apply to just being crazy and whack and screaming and blowing things up and <laughs> just like really diving in and really like indulging in in the Things that we see as so overly expressive and uh, to the point of being weird, <laughs> you know, because we don't have that same level of restriction culturally and, and socially on right. how we can express ourselves in public. Yeah, so, we try, we need to learn to be more subtle. Whereas <laughs> yeah. the Japanese are super subtle, and so they need to learn to be more exclamatory. And so it's like a, yeah. it's like a reverse. So yeah. I think that that could be the reason why you see that in, in Japan. Mm. And then lastly, um, when does a narrative become necessary for health and when does it become just entertainment and escapism? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, you're, you're talking about the intentions of the, of the author or artist. You're talking about what the individual yeah. is going after, what they want from something. So it's kind of a case by case basis, but I think that we've touched yeah. on a little bit, like whether or not, like the importance of theme in mm. in a story, right? How there should, it, most of the time, generally speaking, there should probably be a message that you're trying to you're trying to say something. Otherwise, what's the point? There's a moral to almost every story. That's just kind of what stories have been forever. Yeah, so, I think I kind of have a thought here. <clears throat> go for it. It would be uh, stories are healthy because. Obviously, talking about with Jungian, you know, philosophy and the way people dream and the way we make sense of the world is through abstractions and approximations, right? And mm -hmm. stories are how we get there. Um, stories are incredibly healthy, uh, and when it when it changes from being healthy to entertainment escapism, is I think when the artist is taking advantage of humans' tendencies towards certain things, right? And so if you're telling a story that resonates with people that people, you know, that speaks to the inner 
heart, right? It's healthy, but there are certain things that people want and that people know about themselves, which is um, maybe the ideas of <coughs> like maybe people have had the thought, what would it be like to kill somebody? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And that's an inner thought. That's not, a, that's not something you talk about. That's not something you go around to anybody, but all of a sudden a movie comes out and there's this guy and he kills a lot of people. And there's a part of your mind. That's like, what would that be like? <laughs> like there's yeah. a part of the mind that gravitates towards that. Like, Oh, I would never do it. I, I don't, I don't think, but I would kind of like to watch this person do it for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with a lot of, you know, like sexual stuff in, in, in movies or there, there's a certain point where the, uh, it does become escapism. And that's, I think when the artist is exploiting an in, an inner desire of the human heart, as opposed to uh, meeting it and re- and um, in a, a healthy way, I guess, as <laughs> yeah. opposed to resonating with um, the the attunement of your inner ideas of what approximations are and should be and and all of that kind of stuff, um, as opposed to your inner desires of what your personal like lusts or desires or thoughts or your dark secrets. And when a lot of the art tends to lean towards that, as opposed to the other part of your inside, (laughs) that's when it becomes more exploitative as opposed to, um, uh, healthy, I guess. Yeah. So there may be a line there. Yeah. Anyways, Alexander, I'm sorry that we took so long to get to your question. But, yeah, uh, that was a great question. I do want to say one more thing about uh, Japanese people tending to shut themselves out. Because the, the point that Alexander is making, I believe, is something along the lines of there, there isn't um, as much meaning in life as there used to be. Because mm-hmm. the Japanese used to have something akin to a spirituality when you talk about the kami inhabiting everything from the mountains to the forest, everyday objects. And nowadays they're in their modern society. They don't have that anymore. And to some degree, Japanese people do still try to maintain a level of spirituality. They still have all the temples and shrines and ancestral respect is still a big deal in Japan. But for the most part, the, the religious aspect of Japanese life is almost completely gone. It's almost non-existent anymore. And that has been coupled with a rise in suicide and a rise mm-hmm. in people shutting themselves in, a, a, a dramatic lowering of the birth rate in Japan. And basically just like one generation, they went from average having like four or five kids per family to like one or two. And that's what it's been for, the, for a while now. And it's, it's going to cause them pro- social problems in the future. Um, but... The the can't, lack you can't of, really multiply as a people if you're only having even just two kids, right? You're just I know they're, it the they're, same, right? their population's on the way down now. Yeah, they're declining in in population every year after year, and yeah, it's a problem for them going forward. Obviously, <laughs> you know, you got places like China that are just you know exponentially growing still, and then China's just shrinking or Japan's just shrinking. Um, but the 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 lack of meaning that accompanies modern life is something that. It does have a lot to do with the stories that are being told. 
that the stories that used to be told were stories to, um, about you know the the spirituality and and the the you know the abstraction of what other people would consider to be something like a god that is the universe right and how they can live in harmony with that whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. um and the fact that that doesn't exist anymore and japanese people are having trouble as are western people as are any modern civilization um these these problems tend to um, occur because nihilism sets in and meaningless is a problem. Humans need meaning. And that's part of what the brain does when you're dreaming at night. It takes reality and yeah. it turns it into something that you can actually make sense of. It, 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 and, and that's what the stories used to be. Stories used to take something that you sort of knew a little bit about in your heart, but and, and they gave you something to strive for. They gave you a sense of meaning. And the stories that are being told now just aren't what they used to be. So I think that's the point Alexander's making. I'm sympathetic to it. I understand it. I don't actually know what you could possibly do about it, though. Um, because as societies approach nihilism and um, separation from any type of spirituality, um, you get progressive. Um, you get progress, right? Which most people see as a good thing. Um, that you would not have gotten under a religious um, state, yeah. as you can see from many religious states around the world still. But you also lose your sense of belonging in the universe that you used to have. And and humans are really weird. For some reason, humans have to have a reason to do something. They don't like the... Um, they don't we like doing a, things without a purpose. We have a really hard time with... Uh, with- accepting that something doesn't have a meaning to it right like yeah you think about um even just astronomy you think about the genius of the human mind to look up at just a amalgamation of dots in the sky yeah and connect certain ones together and say this represents this and and there's a story to it and there's a meaning and there's a reason why that arrangement is the way it is and this is what it represents the the creativity the um need to find meaning in that pattern that they found right and that has essentially been like the driving factor in the in human evolution that's what set us apart that's what made us as successful as we are is our, our our just genius for pattern recognition yeah, yeah. I mean, far beyond any other animal. It's not that any other animal can't recognize patterns, but just just blows every other animal on the planet out of the water. Totally. Because not only can we see very, very complicated patterns, predict ones that are to come in very complicated ways, we then mm. use that and we go, okay, why? Why does that happen? We've got to apply meaning. We've got to figure out the reason why. We have to. We have to know... The purpose well, is how humans everything. survive for so long. Yeah. You got to figure out why. Otherwise you might. Yeah. And, and so, <laughs> and so then to have hundreds of thousands of years of evolution along that path, along this ability, this unique ability to do this, to apply meaning to patterns everywhere. Yeah. And then for an idea like nihilism, to interrupt the biological need to find purpose in everything is just unthinkable for most people. 
it's, it's like there has to be a purpose. There has to be a reason for it. Are you kidding right. me? Right? Like that's that's a biological desire and need for that. Yeah, there's a necessity. And so there. when when that is, and when you run into that concept of there isn't a reason, it is random. There isn't a purpose. It just is, and. You do, there's no pattern you could recognize in it. <laughs> like there is no reason it is the way it is. It just is. That is so hard to accept. Mm. Um, okay. Now we got to move into the main topic for today. All Get right. Can't wait. <clears throat> We're going to talk about Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring. Mostly the, the okay. I'll, I'll premise this by saying we, I have not read the novels in far too long. Um, oh, really? I, don't remember them. I remember them. I mean, I've read them multiple times. But right, any time yeah. that you're divorced for something for a number of years, at least in my experience, you tend to really forget a lot of the details. They become fuzzy. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, and maybe this is just me. I don't know. Maybe my memory is bad. But yeah. even from a game like Final Fantasy VII that I've played a million times, like... There are certain things, if I haven't played it for a couple years or whatever, that I come back and be like, oh, I don't remember this part. And and people will be like, oh, you do this, 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 this. And they've got it, like, all totally memorized. And it's just like, does my memory just freaking suck? Like, anyways, <laughs> I, I, I forget things if I'm not, like, kind of constantly um, repeating them personally. I actually talk about this a little bit in the video that's coming out tomorrow as well. Um, mm-hmm. How... In, in learning, you know, the the longer a time goes on without a repetition, like you have a kind of a forgetting curve. Um, anyways, uh, it, it's interesting for when you when you talk about education, right? Like talk about we talk about religions, right? Theocracies and stuff. Like yeah. they there's a reason they make you pray like five times a day. And, you know, like do all these things repeating a, a bunch of times because right. the then it sticks. <laughs> it sticks with you. You remember that crap. And yeah. our education system. Pledge of Allegiance. Like, Here you go. Go to school from age freaking, what is it, like seven or eight to age yeah. 21 or tw- mid-20s. And then you're effing done with school now. <laughs> you're going to forget all of that stuff. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> absolutely. Know? So, anyways. Um Anyways, my point is is that I, I've I've I have recently reread the Silmarillion and the Children of Huron. I, I would say within the last two years, but it's been since we did our book club ten years ago. Yeah, that I've read the actual trilogy. So no, no. everything we're going to talk about pertains to the films, which I've seen far more times than I've read the novels. Obviously, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of course, and um. This is mostly going to be a chat about the movies, the, the, the trilogy, but mostly the Fellowship of the Ring. So I don't know if this was true for you, Kason. I think it's less true for you than it is for me, but maybe probably true to some degree. The I read first, the books about three years ago. But. Okay. I, I feel that the first movie is a true, timeless, classic masterpiece of a film. Like... That movie is as near to perfection as I've ever freaking seen a piece of art in my entire life. Like, it it is perfectly paced. The writing is immaculate. The music is perfect. The performances are perfect. Yeah. The casting is perfect. The freaking art design is perfect. 
the editing of the theatrical version is perfect. Like, it is as near to a perfect work as I've ever seen, especially of an adaption of an existing work. Right. In the sense that it captures the spirit of that original work. Because you cannot do a literal retelling of a novel in a film. It is impossible. No one should expect it. Even in a TV adaption where you can get a lot more of the details in there, there's still just certain things you can't, that they, they just don't translate from the page to the screen. You have to have some liberties to change some things. The Fellowship of the Ring, the film, I would say is equally as different <laughs> from the book as The Two Towers is from its book. And the uh, Return of the King is from its book. There are gajillion changes to it. However, it perfectly captures the spirit of that book, in my opinion. The Two Towers and The Return of the King, which I also just watched uh, recently, are very, very good films. I'm not going to sit here and say they're bad films in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> These are incredibly well-made movies, um, very exciting movies, um, very very well-constructed movies, very well-directed movies, for the most part. I would not consider either of the sequels to be timeless masterpieces or anywhere near the level of perfection that the first movie has. Is that something you would agree with me on? I agree with you to some extent. I think I hold... Um... Uh, Two Towers and Return of the King in a little higher esteem than you do. Um, but I do but I do feel that The Fellowship of the Ring is the best of the three. Okay. So we... we I, and I is think the most book, book close of the three, spirit-wise. Spirit-wise, right? Yeah, spirit-wise. Because they, they changed a lot, but... Yeah. Um, so I... when And I've talked about this in the podcast in the past, too, but when I went and saw... Okay, so I saw The Lord of the Rings, The Flesh of the Ring, in theaters 2001, whenever it was, Christmas. Yeah, yeah. And was just, my, my entire freaking heart and soul and mind were just blown out of this universe. Just like, what on earth yeah. is this? How is this possible? How could something so good exist? I know. <laughs> I went and saw that movie in theaters, I think, ten times during that season of its run or whatever. And... I immediately went and picked up this copy of the novels, all in one. It's got the ring wraith on the hill with the incredibly bright uh, backlight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the moon. Um, yeah, the moon, right? That's right. freaking like <laughs> unbelievable. Anyways, I went and bought this. This is this is the same copy I bought Christmas time 2001, right? And I read this cover to cover. I don't know, two or three times that year in preparation for the next movie. Uh, talked about how we watched just the, the trailer for the two towers over and over again. We'd start the download in the morning before school. We'd leave the internet on, hey, dial, yeah, yeah. Up, <laughs> dial up internet on all day. No one can call the house all day at school. Yeah, no one can call. Come back. The, we can, oh, it's still got a little time left, but it's like 97% we can freaking watch the two towers trailer. Watched it over and over again. So over stoked. Went and saw that movie. I had never been more disappointed in my entire life in a yeah, movie was when I saw The Two Towers. Me too. I came, I came around on it. Yeah, me after too. After time. 
But I, to this day, and I, I think this week I, I figured out what it is, right? To this day, I, I have been trying to find the reason why the Fellowship of the Ring, the spirit of the Fellowship of the Ring works so perfectly for me and how or where it gets lost when we move into the sequels. And, and why did I feel this way? Was this entirely because I just hyped myself way too much? There's mm-hmm. a high possibility that there's some truth to that. I don't think that yeah. that's the exclusive entire reason. I, mm-hmm. I do think that there is a difference in the way these movies feel that something was lost from the first to the second one. And uh, are you disappointed in the sequels because you read the stories first? I think there is part of that that's true. Because I had not read The Fellowship before I saw the movie. However, however, I still don't think that's the entire reason. Because that's what I wanted to say it was. When, When I saw The Two Towers and I came out of that, I said, Faramir has been changed. This is bullcrap. Why did they change that character, right? That is so stupid. I said, why did the Ents not decide to fight at the Entmoot? Why did they try for a a minute to be like, no, this isn't our fight? Why did they make that change that's retarded? These were the reasons that I brought up as to why I thought this movie sucked when I first saw it. But it's, it's not that because... Because when I saw Return of the King, I liked it better, and it's yeah. full of changes, and, and one of the most egregious ones, but this was only in the, the, the extended cut, was when Gandalf oh, is defeated by the, by the, the Witch King, right? Yeah, and he, I he suppose it's a good thing that was cut from the film. <laughs> oh, I would, have, I would have been pissed in the theater if I had seen that. that <laughs> yeah. Total bullcrap. Get out of oh, here with yeah. that. They really weakened Gandalf the White in in the the movies in a way that I did not like because he was my favorite character in the book. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, anyways, but I, I I used these examples of the changes made to events and characters as my reasons for why I didn't like them. But that's not a that's not a good argument to stand on because the Fellowship has just as many changes yeah. to characters and to events as those did. So why yeah. am I able to read and watch the first movie and go, they still feel congruent. They still feel the same. But these don't feel the same. Now, one more caveat before I really jump into this. Is that again? I've been. I have not read those novels for a super long time, and some of what I'm going to say might also apply to why I like elements of the first book better than elements of the second and third book as well. Again, it's been forever, but me in too. My, though I like book one better than book two and three. Also, yeah. So this could apply to that too, right? Mm-hmm. But here we go. I'm going to start with the author himself. Tolkien has expressed, and I'm going to read some of this in his foreword of of the novels for the second edition. He has stated a number of times his disdain for the idea that his books are allegorical in any way. Yeah. That they have any bearing or any resemblance to real life um, events, especially anyone who wanted to make uh, a metaf- the, the ring into a metaphor for nuclear weapons 
um, sure. or any of the the wars to um, the world wars or something like that. Right. He has very vehemently stated <coughs> that is complete BS. I did not write any of that intentionally. That is not what I was thinking. Um, so he says, uh, as for any inner meaning or message, it has the intention of the author. Uh, it has in the intention of the author none. It is neither allegorical nor topical. As the story grew, it put down roots into the past and threw out unexpected branches, but its main theme was settled from the outset by the inevitable choice of the ring as the link between it and the Hobbit. Uh, he says, The real war does not resemble the legendary war in its process or its conclusion. If it had inspired or directed the development of the legend, then certainly the ring would have been seized and used by Sauron. Uh, he would not have been annihilated but enslaved and Barad-dûr would not have been destroyed, but occupied. Um, so I, I want to just make that clear first before I say anything. This dude straight up says there is nothing in this that is supposed to relate to the real world, okay? Yeah. So not I'm, on purpose, at least. I'm not going to pretend <laughs> that what I find as a theme or message in, in the story, and, and which it gives it its spirit was his intent i'm not speaking on behalf of him however i am going to say point to this it has indeed some basis in experience though slender for the economic situation was entirely different and much further back the country in which i lived in childhood was being shabbily destroyed before i was 10 this is the key this is the key the country in which i lived in childhood was being shabbily destroyed before i was 10 in days when motor cars were rare objects. So in all of that, in all of what he just said, trying to deny, 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 any kind of allegorical significance, he still admits, when I was a child, my country was being destroyed by industrialism, industrialization. Yep. Okay. He grew up, well, he was born in South Africa. Yeah, like 96, I think. He moved when he was a very young child back to England into a town called Serhol, which is a couple of miles away. This is a, 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 a rural area outside of the larger Birmingham area. Birmingham is one of the most industrialized cities, one of the most affected by the Industrial Revolution in all of England. Uh, the pollution, the mechanization, so to speak, of that city was enormous. Hmm. But just a little to the south, you have this little rural town called Serhol, which was beautiful, green, full of trees and life and nature. And he went from living there in that peaceful place to becoming... Um, orphaned by the age of 12 and then moving to different more urban areas and to me it is just plain and obvious as day <laughs> that this experience of living in a peaceful in a simple in a beautiful way of life in the country and then being removed from that and taken into a mechanized, polluted, industrial, industrially driven area 
had an enormous effect on what he was passionate to write about when he wrote The Lord of the Rings. Hmm. The, the destruction of nature by Saruman, the, the, of, of the, the larger Isengard area, yeah. um, of, of Mordor, and, yeah. and everything else, it, and, and the attention, the, just the, the amount of attention placed on describing the way of life of hobbits in the Shire, the setup for that, and it is so apparent to me how important this was to him. He hated to see the destruction of trees and wildlife in his country that he found very beautiful mm. in favor of these machines that he then went to war and watched on the front life on the front lines how destructive these machines could be to right. people and to the environment most especially. And the loss of, of beauty and, and a way of life, a simple, beautiful way of life that he really sought after and believed in. That, to me, is the spirit of those novels. That is what those novels are about at their heart. Okay? Mm. That's my reading of it. Sure. So, when we dive into the first movie... Um, I'm going to pull my notes out now. Let's bust this out. I was going through it, and I was writing down just things things that came to me while I was watching it. Um, I remember when I was first watching it, you know, the movie starts out with that pretty incredible action sequence. That, the prologue, that yeah. battle in the prologue. Yeah. And it's just the sweeping camera, and, and you have this beautiful design in the armor of the elves, and, and that line, you know, that shot down the line when the orcs are running, and, just, and they're all just yeah. like, doing, like, kind of like a, a I don't know what you call it, like a delayed, but it's just coming down the line as they're making yeah. the same upward slice on the orcs as they're coming. Very exciting sequence, very cool. That is not what, what really grabbed me, though. That's not what hooked me when I was watching that movie for the first time. And this is something I've been struggling with because, you know, I'm writing my own novel. And one thing that I've been told by certain people reading it is your book is a little bit of a slow burn. You need a hook at the beginning. You need something exciting to hook people. And I struggled with that (laughs) personally. And And as I was watching this movie, I realized that action is not what hooks me into a story. Um, what, where I got hooked was when it opens up and you see Frodo with the book in the tree and you hear Gandalf humming, Frodo knows ever on and on down from the door where it began. And, and there's this feeling as you're going through Hobbiton, like, dude, even now <laughs> I, it, it, it chokes me up, dude. Like there's a feeling when you're going through that place that I cannot explain, like Dude, like the feeling that I get, like watching that scene every time is just, it's a, it's a piece of it is nostalgia. A piece of it is just something maybe spiritual, like we've been talking about something I cannot express with words. It's impossible for me to describe it, but there is an element of a, a way of life that they show. That is something that I think all of us want, like this peaceful, simple, everything hobbits do just like embodies all the good things 
in life, all the things mm. that you can enjoy in life, good company, good food, beautiful landscapes, um, yeah. comfort, and, and, and just like politeness and, and a society that works together. There's no conflict there. It's yeah. like a freaking utopia, but without any um, like government <laughs> regulation on it. It's just people exactly. are just good. The yeah. people are just good there. And it's just a wonderful place. And they, and they spend a lot of time in this movie showing that, right? They go through that place and, and you see the guy, he, he gets the stern look on his face. But yeah. really, really, he <laughs> loves it. He can't wait for those fireworks. And, yeah. and the kids and, and, and Gandalf's performance, the way he talks, just the, just the love of this place. That is what hooked me on that movie. And every time I watch that, that's where I'm like, dude, this is the best movie ever. I love yeah. this movie. Now, that being said, I feel like what they do throughout that movie is they, they, they immediately give you the stakes with that scene. This is what we stand to lose. Mm. This way of life, this beautiful, simple amazing way of life this is what we stand to lose this is what the ring and the enemy seeks to destroy and to take away from us is this place this goodness this beauty and simplicity this will be gone mm. and every scene i feel like throughout the movie emphasizes that it revisits that concept it shows you again and again you know, you, you have uh, Gandalf come back and he, he, he warns, um, he warns Frodo about what's going to happen. He tells him what's necessary. He tells him what he's going to have to do. And then mm. there's a pause and he goes, hobbits really are amazing creatures. Yeah. You can and learn all about their ways in a month. In a, yeah. And in a hundred years, they still surprise you again, revisiting that. That's what we stand to lose. Gandalf gets it. These hmm. people that he can't shake, he has to come back. He's fascinated by them, right? There hmm. is just this, this group of people after all these thousands of years of history of elves and wars and everything else, this little place in the Shire has risen up and like, this is just incredible. It is these people, this way of life is fascinating. How can this exist? This kind this level of goodness in the world, right? Yeah. And, and they revisit that, that then they'll, for a while, show you um, the ringwraiths are chasing them, they're, they're in danger, but then you'll run into Merry and Pippin, and they're yeah. ignorance slash uh, just, just um, not ignorance, but their innocence, stealing from Farmer Maggot, and just the things that are yeah. problems... The, 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 the real conflicts of the Shire are, I stole some carrots from a guy's farm. Exactly. <laughs> you know? And like, you know, cooking mushrooms and stuff. Then you get to Weathertop and they're, they're, in, they're running away from these horrifying creatures, these frightening, frightening things. And they're cooking bacon and tomatoes and, yeah. <laughs> and sausages <laughs> on Weathertop. It's like, what are you doing? Stop it. But like, that's right. what makes them so lovable and having mm -hmm. second breakfast what about second breakfast like all of that is <laughs> constantly reminding yeah. you of this what we stand to lose 
And so we go to action, then we come back to, we, this, is what's, this is what's at stake. And then we go to action, this is what's at stake. And, and you know, I, I'm skipping through a bunch of my notes because I'm trying to hurry because we've been going for a while. Oh, but it's all good. We, go ahead, man. I like this. This is great. We, we get to, um, like, like my favorite moments, my favorite moments of the movie are almost in every case scenes, uh, interpersonal scenes, scenes of dialogue between characters. Um, scenes like um, when they're in Cause of Doom, right? And he doesn't know which way to go. And and he they, he realizes Frodo realizes Gollum is following them. He's oh like, yeah, Bilbo should have killed him when he had the chance. So that many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? These moments of of a pause from the action, from the frightening things, to bring us back and root us in what it is again we stand to lose. What are the stakes? Yeah. The, What's the really ring important here. The ring. Think about what the ring does. The ring. The reason the ring is so nefarious is because it corrupts. It takes the goodness of these hobbits, these mm. people, and it corrupts them. It takes that simplicity, that beauty, that innocence. It corrupts it. Yeah. Right. And, well, and maybe that, that's a part of why the books, the movies, and books. As they as we move on to movie two and movie three, that you get less and less of of that. Yes, that's and, exactly and, what it is. Is that the point you're making? That's okay, exactly good. what it is good. for me. All of these moments, you, you, it, mm-hmm. when uh, okay, the reason why it was so devastating when Gandalf falls and why that was such a powerful moment. First of all, the acting is off the charts. The reason he should did he win an Oscar? For his role in that movie, they won four Oscars. I don't remember any of them for acting, though. If he did not win Best Supporting Actor for his role as Gandalf the Grey in Fellowship of the Ring, that is absolute bullcrap because that scene where he faces the Balrog is the most epic thing I have ever seen on film in my life. Nothing touches it. I get chills every time I watch that. And the reason why is because of all of this setup. Not just because of what we stand to lose. For me, the personal stakes are so high. But because he is the only one of the non-Hobbit characters in this fellowship who gets it. Who actually understands what we stand to lose. He's the only one. Aragorn, sort of, but not really. He gets it later when when he tells Frodo to go. He gets that he can't be part of Frodo's journey. He he does eventually come around. But at the time... Gandalf is the only one. And and so when he falls, it's like not only was yeah. he the most wise, the most powerful, brought a, a level of comfort to the fact that maybe we can do this. So you lose that when he goes. But he was the only one who understood the hobbits, who understood yeah. the Shire, who understood the stakes at, at hand. You have Boromir here who has a different agenda entirely. His stakes are different. Um, Aragorn's stakes for the most part are different. He cares more about Arwen and, 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 That's and true. that, and, and Gandalf was he the only one, stuff. Gandalf yeah. was the only one who was fighting for the Shire. Of course, he's fighting for all of Middle Earth. That's his entire purpose, but he got the Shire. Mm-hmm. And so that was why that was such a devastating moment. But then even after that, we go into Lothlorien. 
Um, he says, Oh, have you ever been called home by the My father of... is a noble man, but his rule yeah. is failing. He looks to me to make things right, and I would do it. That would performance do... by Sean Bean is so oh, he's fantastic. He's so good. Um, he's so good. I would see the glory of Gondor restored. Have you ever seen it, Aragorn? The white tower of Ecthelion, glimmering like a pike of pearl and silver. Its banners caught high in the morning breeze. Have you ever been called home by the clear ringing of silver trumpets? Like this, these types of moments, there's so freaking many of them. And it constantly reminds us of the stakes. It's about losing your way of life, your way of life becoming corrupted, you becoming corrupted, you turning from this good and pure and simple and beautiful person into someone capable of great evil, um, losing mm-hmm. your humanity, losing your, your, your home, losing your way of life ultimately is what, what you have to lose. And, and, and every character except for Gimli and Legolas <laughs> shows this, um, shows this like need to protect what they love right now the elves are an entirely different story because the elves are the they are losing it they've lost it already they have lost what's precious to them they've lost their way of life and and those who are remaining here are just clinging to a memory of it right so they have already they are they are the proof in the pudding of what all of these characters in the fellowship stand to lose you could end up like the elves but you don't have anywhere to go like them you don't get to escape and go somewhere else like you get to you protect this thing and or you lose it for good you don't get to go to valinor you don't get to escape like they do but the sadness the the depressive feeling you get in all of the the elvish places where it's like you see this element of beauty and it's reflected in the music the music has very minor yeah it does doesn't it that's that's a good point it has a mystery and a and a beauty in it but there's Mm -hmm. very minor undertones in the music that express this deep like regret and sadness and everything else and and a loss a loss of what they found beauty and uh, beautiful and, and noble and good in life and and they're they don't have it anymore right all of this ties into this theme, this spirit of what I believe Tolkien, even if it was inadvertent, even if he didn't mean to, even if it wasn't purposeful, what to me is so clear was important to him uh, yeah. in his life and what he, he experienced. And that, that is the spirit of the mm. Lord of the Rings to me, right? Um, and then, of course, the ending. Uh, and I, I talk a little bit about action, right? Like... I am not a fan of um, Peter Jackson's action. I don't. I don't like it. It's way over the top for the most part, mm. and and it can be kind of silly. And it's not, not that it's bad, but it's just not grounded. And I don't think that his style of action belongs in a film whose spirit is so grounded in these types of deep emotional, powerful feelings. Right, and mm. so. The first movie has the least of that silly action. I think, like, the most ridiculous yeah. thing that happens in the whole movie, action-wise, is, like, stuff like uh, him shooting an arrow through a guy and then, like, two orcs, like, run into his back <laughs> and they oh, all get yeah, pierced yeah. by the same arrow. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, this, is, this one isn't silly. This one's actually kind of cool. I like this one where the, the troll 
like whips the chain around the pillar and then he sort of like oh, steps on it up. and yeah. runs up and then shoots him. That's cool. Act- it's actually kind of cool. And it shows his his skill, his finesse. Light that. Yeah. It, it's it's a fantasy action that I think still works. Oh, actually the silliest one to me is when they're going down the stairs and the stairs are broken and they're like leaning like hold on and like oh, lean oh, forward yeah. and then like <laughs> like his action's just so over the top. Yeah. To the point of feeling silly. But in the fellowship it's subdued tremendously in comparison to what you get in the next movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. And so then of course the ending is perfect because everything sucks and is terrible and and Boromir sacrifices himself but redeems himself, but there's a lot of sadness, a lot of de- depressing stuff that happens right there at the end. But it still ends on this resounding note of hope because Sam goes with him and then the speech Sam gives to Frodo there at the end is another one of those examples. You have what Aragorn says to Frodo. There's just so many of those moments, like you pointed out. And you get less and less of those in the sequels as they start focusing their attention on building up to a huge battle sequence. Mm. Um, The directorial choices, the scenes, the way it's paced, what they say is this slow build to these giant war or a giant battle set pieces essentially yeah um and that's which is cool in its own right it's just not it's just it's just not thematically the same yeah thematically and and in terms of how how the movie feels to watch and again i'm not saying Mm. at all that i think that the other two movies are bad i thought that the two towers was bad the first time i saw it yeah me too but they're good uh, movies upon this upon this rewatching, even even still i was like you know this is great like i really really like this this is really good stuff i'm not saying at all that they're bad or, or poorly made or anything like that what i'm saying is that there is a very different spirit a different feel to the sequels that I feel focuses more upon getting into large action than upon those simple moments reminding us of what we stand to lose. And I think a part of it too, and this could even be a critique of the books when we get to that in book club eventually. Yeah, yeah. You you do not have the same time spent on developing Rohan or Gondor as characters quote-unquote so to speak like the shire like the shire it's true it's true you you do not have an attachment to rohan or to gondor the same way that you do to the shire so these people you see the same the same um vigor from them the same need to protect their way of life in their homeland but it doesn't feel the same yeah. Because I don't know anything about freaking Rohan. I saw them ride through the freaking street up to the castle or whatever. Yeah. I don't know why this place is wonderful. I don't, I don't understand its culture the same way that I understand the culture of the Shire. And so we're focused on these new lands and these new places and these new characters. But it's like, I, I don't feel for you like I feel for the hobbits. Yeah. And I don't. I don't remember how much time is spent on that in the novels. This is why I want to reread them, hopefully within the next couple of years of book club or whatever. Um, Cause I want to see how, how much he delved into that. Cause culture was something he does so well, right? He like, he does a, such yeah, a good job good that. of establishing cultures and what makes them unique, but go ahead. But I doubt you would, 
you know, I, I mean, nothing will be as fleshed out as the Shire yeah, on purpose. For sure. For sure. Like, you'll never get that level. And partly because Frodo's, you know, one of the main characters, I guess. Yeah. Where it's like his homeland, and then Aragorn was just a wanderer. So it's like, we don't get much from where he's from. <laughs> yeah. So... It, it, I, I I definitely know that you're right about that, that you're not going to have the same level for those places as you do for the Shire. And that even the books yeah. were building, slow building towards these larger battles. But I just wonder if I want to reread them with this idea in mind about what hmm. the thematic spirit of the story is and see if those books embody it better than the films did and hmm. see if that could be an explanation for the reason why when I saw those movies, I was like, something just feels off. It's not bad. There's nothing wrong with it. It just doesn't feel quite right the way that this one did to me. That is more or less where I'm coming from. (laughs) I I see that. I see that. One of the big problems that I understand as far as the book goes is the fact that Frodo and his whole story is is separated at the midpoint in the book from Aragorn and his story in terms of the two towers mm-hmm. and Return of the King. We we see the stories happening not simultaneously one scene after the other, but we see them happening one whole block here and then one whole block here. And it's not entirely obvious where the parts overlap um, mm-hmm. as t- in terms of you know time. I guess only at certain points do we see. Oh, this is when that was happening, or this is when that yeah. happened. Um, and so it gets, it does get really difficult, uh, specifically for Peter Jackson, because the fellowship is not like, like that. The other book, these two separate storylines. And I've always attributed, I, I love what you're saying. I think there's a huge mm-hmm. part of that, but I've always attributed the difficulties of Two Towers and Return of the King to the fact that there are two separate storylines being told simultaneously. Yeah, and, that's and it true. gets really awkward going from the two towers and Legolas skateboarding down the stairs, and then and <laughs> now here's Frodo <laughs> trying to to punish Gollum, or no, yeah. trying to side with Gollum while Gollum tries to punish Sam. Anyways, it's like. Yeah. It's it's weird, and I think the way the books did it was better. But I sympathize with um, with Jackson and the fact that you can't make a movie like that. You can't yeah. have the the climax of the two towers happen in the middle and then just talk about Frodo and Gollum. Different characters, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it just would not work for a film at all. <coughs> I yeah. I wouldn't have liked that. Yeah. But he had to find a way to kind of do it, and I think the movie suffers because of that. It, the yeah. books weren't made to be movies like that. I mean, it, yeah, I don't know exactly how you should do that other than to split it up into more movies, which yeah. would be five Jeez. movies total. Yeah. The wow, fellow or each book in the Lord of the Rings. Is, so there's six an, books. Technically each one of those should be its own movie. Oh man. Even that would be tough. They would feel so incomplete. I feel like if you just told the story of Frodo and Sam, I know. Cause all of a sudden yeah. there's no Aragorn. Yeah. There yes. would be huge problems with that too. Yeah. It works in the work. book. It, it doesn't no. work perfectly though. Because there are this, times where I get a little fatigued um, reading the books and specifically sometimes reading Frodo and Sam's parts of the books dragging on for chapters and chapters and chapters without knowing what's going on on the other side. Um, okay, so I actually made a note about this. I wrote, uh, yeah. admittedly, because I started watching The Two Towers directly after. I said, admittedly, the sequels are much trickier from a tonal perspective Some of the material it explores is so much darker and more disturbing with innocents being slaughtered in villages and heads being flung over walls in uh, the return of the king. 
um, you know, that sort of thing. And, and trying to include that without losing the, um, the entertainment value of a blockbuster Hollywood film is impossible. Like you yeah. can't, you can't explore that in a very serious thematic way in a PG 13 movie made for wide audiences. <laughs> you, you can't like really explore the, the darkness and the, the disturbing nature of what's happening tone wise in a movie made for teenagers, kids, and everyone to see. So mm. this leads to even more humor being inserted into things than was in the novels, right? Because in the novels, right. I think he was that's aware true. of this. Like, and that's why yeah. he wrote in Aragorn and Legolas, or not Aragorn, uh, Gimli and Legolas Gimli. competing for yeah. the number of orcs they could kill in battles. They, they, he added some elements of lightheartedness into those things to sort of like help in them not to just feel awful. <laughs> Um, yeah. But yeah. Jackson inserts even more of it, especially in the Battle of um, of Helm's Deep, in, in yeah. Legolas s- skateboarding downstairs and shooting people. And you and you then get Gimli that sliding underneath that orc's legs. Yeah. And like, and like <laughs> cracking him in the groin. <laughs> and, and what really gets me is that little aside they have where Aragorn and Gimli kind of come around and he's like, you have to toss me. He's like, yeah, oh, yeah. I cannot don't tell this. the F. <laughs> And he throws him over there. Yeah, right. that's great. Now, <laughs> I actually really it, liked that part. Admittedly, like, um, who's the actor who plays Gimli? John Rhys Davies. John Rhys Davies is yeah. just a, a freaking national treasure. That that guy yeah. is just I such a him. lovable dude. And, <laughs> yeah, he is. And his portrayal of Gimli is perfection. Yeah, very good. And that moment is genuinely funny. And... Uh, and all of the moments of, of humor within that battle, I think, are not only well delivered, but they are necessary for the format because this is a Hollywood blockbuster meant for people of young ages and old, older people to enjoy. And you've got to have some fun in the movie for it to work on a wide scale like that. But to yeah. me, that is totally antithetical to the spirit of what's happening there. These people are losing their way of life, like I'm talking about. And, and the threat of the orcs, the threat of Saruman, the threat of the ring is diminished, I feel, by those asides and those extra bouts of humor that yeah. are inserted in there. And that's why, for me, the moment when Gandalf comes riding down and, and, and the flare of the music yeah. is so powerful, but it just feels not nearly as powerful to me as the stand on the bridge of Khazad Doom. Like mm. there was none of that humor during that, those battles in, in, in the tombs. Like, no, it it's true. Very serious. Except and very Pippin's scary. whole Pippin's little. He, he does for, That's not uh, yeah, really and, funny. And, I felt bad for him. I was like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it is funny. But at the same time, it's like, Oh man, like what a moron. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. But, Especially the way Gandalf looks at him once the drums start beating. It's like, it's not funny. I, yeah. I admit that I tend to be a person who who loves more serious tones and, and yeah. stuff to be explored in a more dark way. I don't know. that That's a personal preference. And for a lot of people, 
Like, like I, I grew up with a, a bunch of, I mean, all of our friends were watching these movies. These movies were a freaking global phenomenon yeah. when they were coming oh, out. Yeah. We were in junior high and high school when they were coming out. And mm. I had a good friend who, who I came to school and I wanted to talk about the Fellowship of the Ring. And, you know, a bunch of my friends were on board. They thought it was amazing, as most people did. But this one buddy I had was like, that's the most boring movie I have ever seen in my life. And I fought him tooth and nail over that. But guess what? He loved the two towers. Oh my gosh. He loved the fellow. He loved return of the King. And I hated that movie when I first saw it. So when I came to debate him the day after seeing it, it was like, you don't get why this one was so good. You don't get it. You don't get it. You are a simpleton. Like I I went off on him. Right. But I'm starting to kind of realize the reasons why I felt that way. And I think it has everything to do with the fact that I felt so powerfully in the fellowship what the stakes were and what we what we stood to lose. And it meant something to me. I didn't want them to lose it. Right. In The Two Towers and in Return of the King, the stakes were never that high for me. And Mm -hmm. I think it's because Rohan is not explored in the same depth as the Shire. And we have less and less focus on these moments of introspection, these moments where we were reminded of the goodness and the purity we stand to lose. And there's more focus on driving us forward into large action, uh, uh, large battle sequences where a lot of silliness happens. And, and the worst one for me is in Return of the King when Legolas takes down the Oliphant and like slides down the front of its trunk. <laughs> My understanding and, is that was actually a reshoot. That was a green screen. That scene wasn't <laughs> in the original. It wasn't until the the fellowship was successful. All of a sudden, Peter Jackson got greenlit for a, an additional budget to do reshoots for the yeah. two and three. And he green screened like crazy. I heard, um, what's his name? Uh, Aragorn, Viggo Mortensen talking about how the second and third movies were shot. And there mm-hmm. is a little bit of a difference. They were all shot at the same time, but there were a ton of reshoots that happened. Yeah. For movies two and three in like 2001 in the summer that were basically all green screen. And it was like, ah, Peter Jackson, even, even then, even then was bit by the green screen bug of VFX. And you could see, I feel the, the change. And I know there are lots of problems with the Hobbit that are not his fault. These are studios. Sure. I feel bad for for the way that went down on his part, but I feel like the fellowship of the ring is not, is an outlier among his films, in my opinion, of a certain style of directing, a certain way of making a movie. That is, the reason it is so good is because that must have, I mean, it did, it sucked to make those movies, right? The amount of work, the travel to these remote locations. I mean, Sean Bean refused to freaking fly a helicopter and actually freaking climbed a mountain in the snow. hiking. Yeah, I can't believe it. People were running into rivers and getting their feet cut and having to be rushed to hospitals. I mean, like there was a lot of problems and a yeah. lot of stress. And the 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 answer is like this would be so much easier if I could control the set and I could just film it on a green screen on some freaking like rocks that we build in a studio. Yep. Easier. It's a million yes. times easier and <laughs> it shows. It sh- the quality of the yep. film shows immensely between the first and the next one and and that carries on not only in how the the hobbit trilogy was made but also in um in the level of just absurdity in his action sequences that barrel (laughs) sequence in the second film is just like what on earth 
are you doing? This is so out of place. This is so wrong for yeah. the spirit of these novels. There's nothing <laughs> about this that is grounded. That's, that's, that is another element of Tolkien. He's writing a fantasy. None of this stuff. There's magic and dragons and all kinds of fantastical stuff, but it's so grounded because it he is, spent yeah. so much time developing languages and cultures and everything feels so believable and like it could exist and that, it, that maybe this could have been history. I could right. see legit religions believing in this crap because there's so much like strong cultural continuity <laughs> and, and, right. and linguistic continuity that people could look at that and go like that, that feels real. Right. And, and the Hobbit films, especially in their action directing is just so opposite of that. It is so off the wall, totally ungrounded. And then in the third film, when, when Legolas is like running up those freaking like stones as the bridge is collapsing yeah, like Mario he's, he's like running up it's yeah. just like oh my what is this dude yeah, that was pretty stupid <laughs> every orc is fake every creature is cgi no, there's no actors in cosmetics in makeup none of yeah. even the actors there we weren't holding actual weapons they were just no, holding green sticks cg weapons the, yeah. the the castles were real in the original trilogy mm -hmm. now i know the reason why it's because they, they shot miniatures and i love miniatures i wish star wars would go back to shooting on miniatures again like the space oh, yeah. battle sequences i would love to see mm -hmm. what modern camera uh like um automation in terms of yeah like, the way they're uh, all dollies on rigs. And, yeah on rigs what they could do with shooting miniatures and models in a space battle akin to return of the jedi with modern camera technology i would love to see what that would look like i think that could be amazing and and like far exceed what any cgi battle could look like but the reason why they switched is because they were shooting in 3d uh 48 frames per right. second and you yeah. can't use any of the same tricks that they used in the original trilogy to sell the scale on those models and on uh, uh, forced perspective and, yeah. and all that stuff that was so beautiful and artistic and just creative in the way that those original films were made, especially Fellowship, w would not work. And so they over rely on CGI. The action is just completely absurd. And the, the spirit is just entirely betrayed. It's just nothing, it feels nothing like it's supposed to. And you go from Fellowship to the third Hobbit film, and it's just, it, it's a total slide <laughs> downward from beginning to end, just this absolute yeah. degradation and destruction of the spirit of these novels to the point of it just being a, an utter joke, just, yeah. just, just taking a piss on the freaking story. Original and it story. started so well. Here's a funny thing. People have been calling for in this new... Um, Amazon Prime Lord of the Rings TV series that they've yeah. ordered like five seasons of now and it's going to be huge and crazy and super expensive. Um, people are saying, oh man, Peter Jackson should be involved and let's get Howard Shore to do the music. No. And, and, and I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. No. Let's try new people <laughs> because the old people, they, they've had six tries now and it's only going downhill. Let's get new people. Let's not yes. do Peter. I love Peter Jackson. He's one of my favorites because of the fellowship, but let's get new people, please. These guys, their vision has been done. And like, we don't need another one of those. Let's see if somebody else can, can recapture that lightning in a bottle. Somebody mentioned that Lindsay Ellis's video that I have seen pretty good, but yeah, it's recapture good. It's good that lightning in a bottle. I don't think Jackson can do it again. 
Yeah, I, and and to his credit, he didn't even want to try with the Hobbit. He did. He knew that he, the passion wasn't there. He was yeah. like, "I, you need to be so passionate to create a masterpiece like that," and I don't have that anymore. He knew yeah. it. And, and, and Guillermo del Toro, I want to see his version so bad because he had that. Yeah. And you could tell he, he had that. Exactly. And you could see how freaking destroyed yeah. he was by the fact that he didn't get to do it. Yeah. And Jackson took it over and he, you could tell he didn't care. Yeah. And, and not only did he not care as much, but the studio completely boned him in the process where, where he's just like, yeah. they had no plan. They, they planned the fellowship of the ring for five freaking years before they shot. That's anyone. right. Yeah. 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 Pre-production was five years. Of course it's a masterpiece. If you have five years to prepare to <laughs> yeah. shoot a movie, how can you mess that up? But he right. had weeks, months to cobble together, whatever the freak they could do. And, and if they have videos on this on YouTube, the behind the scenes of him being like, okay, take a break. Yeah, they're up now. Everyone freaking go have some lunch or whatever. And he's just sitting there on the set going like running through hot, shots right? in his head. Uh, I don't have a storyboard for this necessarily. Yeah, like what shots am I going to do? That's crazy. He's literally storyboarding in his freaking brain before they shoot the thing. Like, see, that's of what course it didn't work out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you don't do that on a freaking like $300 million budget film. You do that when you got to make know. a YouTube video for Monday. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Come on, man. Ah, oh, it's freaking ridiculous. So it's not entirely thought, his fault. I have a thought for how this maybe could work in a movie, and it would it would have to just butcher the books a thousand times over, but it would capture the spirit from beginning to end. Because seeing the critiques that you've brought up and understanding them to some degree, I believe if the Lord of the Rings was one movie, just one film. Beginning crazy. to end, you could capture the Shire at the beginning and have it be more meaningful yes. at the end, being yes. in one film, than having it be separated and kind of losing that meaning because of the year separation between the films by the end of that third one. What do you think about that? I think that what you're suggesting in, in the uh, baseline is correct, but it would yeah. have to be like a seven or eight hour movie, right? <laughs> well, no, it'd be three hours. You just cut. So what would you cut? I mean, what would you, you cut? probably have to cut Helm's Deep? Um, you would probably have to cut. You'd cut a lot of stuff. You would have to cut a ton. But I think it can be done. Just there's movies that go through big journeys like that. You know, I think that I'll it, yeah. I'll say this. I'll say that. Let's turn it into longer than three hours, but let's not go to the extreme of like seven. Let's say right. we're going to make a five-hour epic. Five. Or, or maybe four and a half. Um, I think you can gut a tremendous amount out of the two towers. Not Helm's Deep, right. but a lot of the stuff in between. Um, all the stuff that they inserted into the movie for Arwen and Aragorn, which were Arwen, not in yeah, the books. Leave. They were in the appendices, but they were not in the, in, in the actual stories of yeah, they're not the part books. of the actual story. Eowyn is that. important in so much as Faramir is important, but that... Yeah. Probably both of their storylines could probably be cut, I think. But if, if we're talking about a film, right? So we're adapting this to film. And the purpose is to remain true to the spirit of the, the book. The spirit of the book always has to trump or, or, or inform your decisions on what you're going to include. So yeah. if I'm directing this 
And in my opinion, the spirit of that book is that the loss of a way of life and, and the threat of corruption is, is at the theme. Then everything we show should more or less enforce that. So this love, uh, 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 you know, between, uh, what do you call it? Um, hopeless love between Aragorn and Eowyn. Not necessary. Yeah. Not necessary. Right. It does not add to that theme. You can cut that. Um, anything, essentially, that falls into not reinforcing that concept, you can cut. And I think if you do that, there's quite a lot you could cut from the two towers and probably even Return of the King to some extent. Um, yeah. But there's a possibility. I mean, I, you'd have to just... You just have to be freaking scissors dual wielding just just like slicing and dicing <laughs> on the cutting floor you'd be drowning <laughs> in clips <laughs> but i think if that is and, and this is actually something that um who's the author of uh, ender's game oh um uh dang it what is his name yeah famous joker Hold on, i gotta look this up ender's game the author uh, is orson scott card Orson Scott Card. That's it. I was reading an interview with Orson Scott Card because he actually has written a number of screenplays um, uh, for them for a movie version of Ender's Game. None of them were accepted, and he said that he he more or less came to this same conclusion. What is the spirit of that book? What is what is it at its heart? Right? Because trying to decide. What do I focus on? What scenes do I keep? Which scenes do I lose? Especially when you're attached to it as the author. Oh like, yeah, you. Oh, we can't it lose this. Lose this is really important. Yeah, like, there's, there's a, a reason, reason why you put I it there. That right. But he said yeah. that the the last version of the the last screenplay of it that he wrote that was eventually rejected by the studio. He said he finally found what that was. You know, for me in the Lord of the Rings, it is like I said this threat of losing a, a beautiful, simplistic, wonderful way of life, and the threat of the corruption of that. Yeah. That, to me, is a theme. He found what he thought his, the theme of his book was, and he wrote a script that was laser-focused on that. Every scene contributed to building to, that, to the climax of delivering that theme. And he was like, this is, this, was, this is the best script that could have been written for this story for that reason. I think that you'd have to do something very similar, and that every choice you made would have to be totally informed by that in order for the film to deliver on the thematic spirit of the books and a lot of stuff would get cut. But I think as a film, as a standalone product, it would be amazing, right? Like just very focused and very um, impactful. It would deliver emotionally in every scene. Um, Anyways, uh, should probably wrap this up. We've been going for, yeah, I guess we're done here. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, That's good though. This will not be the last time we talk about Lord of the Rings. I want to make a video on this um, for the you YouTube should. I think you should. And I so, think that's great. And that's a theme that I don't think a lot of people have identified. Yeah, um, I as much. I want to make a video on this on the YouTube channel. And so, like I like we've said in the past, this podcast is now a testing grounds more or less for ideas. So please mm-hmm. give me your feedback because I want to know perspectives I'm missing on this um, and, and make sure that I don't say anything I'll regret in the actual final yeah. video. For because... instance, is there anyone out there that thinks movie two or three is better than Fellowship of the Ring? Oh, I'm sure there are. 
Yeah. I I mean, you mentioned you knew one person. I I think I know who you're talking about, but I don't know <laughs> who else. I've never I I it's a very rare thing to meet people like that. So I think give us that, your reasons. I think that when you're talking about people who are filmmakers themselves, people who really like appreciate the art of filmmaking, for the most part they all lean fellowship. But when you're yeah. talking about general audience and just like people seeing movies for entertainment, I actually think it's more Two Towers. I think a lot of people lean on Two Towers as their favorite, at least in my experience. Yeah. That's what I've seen. And then Return of the King's the one that won like a thousand Oscars. I so. know. Because it was all done as an apology, basically. It was, it was for like... all three. Yeah. It wasn't <laughs> just for that one movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyways. Uh, let me know what you think about what I've said. If you have any counterpoints, please bring them to my attention because this is a video I would be very passionate about making. I really want to do it. Okay. I want to do it as my next Looks video. Looks like a walrus enjoyed Two Towers as much as Fellowship. Yeah. I think a lot of people cool. did. And and I've even talked to some people on Discord who were like, they <laughs> think the most epic thing they've ever seen on screen is when Gandalf comes riding down the hill and they they come in. That and, is cool. That is really yeah. cool. And then and the, to them, the that was, Gimli yeah. blows the horn. Yeah. Up at the at the Hornberg, I think. Yeah, and I, I think that it's really, really well well directed sequence, but just doesn't even come close to topping Bridge of Casa Doom for me for the reasons I explained. Right. But, anyways, mm. um, let's move on to our community stories as we wrap up here. All um, right. Okay, so we have HD Baird, guy who's been following us for a long time on YouTube. He has a self published novella. Um, called Amnion. I'm going to switch to my screen here. See it here on Amazon. Uh, links will be in the description. Um, he's got a, a novella that he's published and uh, wanted to let you guys know about that. Um, since our rebranding, right, our, our focus has changed slightly more to just storytelling as a, as a general sort of theme for the channel and, and good writing and that sort of thing. So a lot of you guys are writers yourselves. You're aspiring storytellers. And so uh, Amnion here, mm. written by H.D. Baird. This is something I would like. I, I'm, I'm going to buy this myself for sure um, and read this. Maybe uh, maybe we can even work this into book club somehow. I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll think about that. I don't want to make any promises. I, I probably shouldn't have said that. I don't want to make any promises, but um, it would be cool if we could read some of the material you guys are writing and we can... Um, give feedback to each other, critique each other, and help each other become better writers. So Amnion by H.D. Uh, Baird. Wanted to point that out. Um, then we have also uh, Dream State Saga, a three-book series um, written by Paul Mannering. Uh, and uh, let's see. This is... Um, is there a summary here? I want to read like a summary of it. After a terrible car... Actually, let me read a summary of H.D. Baird's, too. The summary for Amnion is, On a desolate rock drifting through space are, are the ruins of an outpost, its inhabitants slain and entombed in ash. Save one, an old soldier cut off from the rest of humanity with no orders, no means of escape, and no purpose. He dwells inside the remains of a forsaken house like a favorite memory, and it keeps him alive. Yet the time to move on will soon be upon him, for while focusing his efforts on the dangers he's kept out, the dweller will soon be overwhelmed by those kept within. Very interesting premise. Uh, and then we have uh, the Dream State Saga series here. After a terrible car accident paralyzes 17-year-old Noah Newbolt, 
is hooked up to uh, the innovative Dream Engine, a virtual reality helmet that immerses the player in an online fantasy game. The Dream Engine keeps Noah's mind alive while doctors frantically work to heal his body, but dying in the game could send Noah into a coma forever. Uh, meanwhile, Noah's girlfriend Sue is suffering injuries from the same car crash, and the doctors grow confused when she seemingly fails to connect to the game. Then Noah encounters a mysterious avatar who suggests the last remnants of Sue's consciousness are being held prisoner in the most dangerous parts of the game. Uh, Noah takes it upon himself to rescue Sue, uh, allying himself with a group of high-level players, but as he rises through the ranks, his high status earns him the ire of top players across the world. Can Noah stay alive and awake long enough to save Sue and escape the game? All right, cool premise there. Um, and so, yeah, uh, those Amazon links for both of those will be in the description. Um, thank you for sharing those with us, guys. This next one comes from Squarehard, <coughs> and he's got a lot of art here. Um, I'm just going to share the discord channel by the way if you want to share something you're working on with us join the discord i've got it here on screen there this channel here under the state of the arc podcast uh category we have our podcast chat this week's stories this is where you can share news stories that come out you want us to touch on but the community oh, yeah. stories section is where you can share your work with us so this he's making a board game called uh dance card I think he does a little bit of an explanation over here. It's a gateway game meant to get people who maybe would never play a strategy game into the hobby. It's called Dance Card and is set during a high school homecoming dance. The object of the game is to dance nice. with your three crushes before anyone else does. Uh, the first player to dance with all three of their dance partners first wins. Uh, pretty straightforward. Um, and he's got some, some cool art that he shared of the different characters. Uh, very well done. Really interesting... Um, style and, and nice shading and everything on this really really well done art so super cool that's from square hard uh if you want to hit him up uh you know <clears throat> again join discord and and reach out to him and, and maybe he can uh give you more information about the game hmm. so that is that and then our final one for the day is from the penske file here is his YouTube channel, The Penske File. Again, this will be in the description. He has a podcast all about Star Trek and wanted to see if we, if we would share that today. So uh, talking to him about Deep Space Nine, this is the latest video he shared with me. Um, so go and check out his podcast if you're into Star Trek, especially uh, DS9. DS9 is amazing. If you've not watched it, you should watch it. It's freaking great. The best Star Trek, potentially. <laughs> um, anyways, that is it. For our podcast today thank you everyone for joining right. us we appreciate you guys um again any suggestions you have for the fellowship of the ring topic hit me up with that i'll be reading the comments uh mm -hmm. so i can refine my ideas a little, as much as possible but in any case you guys are awesome we should be All affiliated right. after this episode so i'll try and work on that subs button and enabling bits and stuff like that <laughs> I will, I'll try to learn more about Twitch this week. <laughs> yeah. And I'll keep you informed also about that Kingdom Hearts, potential Kingdom Hearts playthrough. We'll see if that happens or not. Do uh, you have anything else, Kaysen? Before we go? No, Walrus said really quick, is Kaysen reading The Last Wish? And the answer is yes, I am. I was only sick last week. I will mm -hmm. be there on Tuesday for our book club here on Twitch. And uh, I've read through chapter four. 
you're even ahead of me. You, you've you've gotten all the way through the, uh, the 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 reading that I assigned. I'm not there myself. I got to do it today. So all right, cool. Um, anyways, come ready on Tuesday with your notes, with your thoughts, and we'll discuss the last wish some more. Till then, uh, also watch my video tomorrow. Until then, <laughs> you guys peace out. <laughs> Have a great week coming up. See you later. Peace.